like to begin tonight by telling you one thing I've heard from even the most long-term and dedicated meditators, which is when I get sick or when I'm struggling with a chronic illness, um, the last thing I want to do is meditate. Uh, The very last thing I want to do, it's really, really hard when we have a cold or a flu or a migraine or we're fatigued. There's just, we do not want to get still and pay attention to discomfort. And then people tell me something else, which is when I'm sick or when I'm dealing with chronic sickness, what I most need at those times is some self-compassion or kindness. And it's the absolute last thing I can do. I cannot offer myself any kindness at those times. Second thing I hear. And then the third thing is, Tara, you talk about radical acceptance. Well, when I'm feeling sick, when I'm, when I'm feeling miserable, or again, dealing with chronic sickness, really serious sickness, deep down, I'm not accepting it. That's not acceptable. So there's, those are some of the things I hear. Now, unless we get knocked off early, really early, there's really any of us that aren't going to be sick, and um, some for long stretches, some chronically, then eventually most of us seriously, and then dying. So all of us are going to be dealing with this, or already are. There are people in this room right now dealing with chronic and acute illnesses. So everybody's got this one, or most of us, and we can't control it. And so the inquiry, and this becomes a really, really important inquiry. This is the Buddha's main inquiry. How do we find peace? Not only peace, how do we find happiness and freedom in the midst of these changing bodies and minds in the midst of this changing life where this body goes? And sometimes very uncomfortably. Stephen Levine wrote a book, Healing into Life and Death. How do we heal into life and death? So I've been many times asked to talk more about working with chronic illness, working with dying. So that's what we'll be doing tonight. We'll see how it goes. Just share some reflections. We'll do a bit of an exercise. One of the main little phrases you hear, and it's kind of Buddhist jargon now, is that pain is inevitable and suffering is optional. Just hear that a lot. That that it's if you're in this body on planet Earth, there's going to be pain. There's going to be unpleasant sensations and emotions. But it's optional whether we suffer. And what makes it optional is that it all depends on how we're relating to the discomfort. Everything comes down to how we're relating to what's going on. So if we're suffering, it's arising because of the meaning we're making out of the situation. The story we're telling ourselves about what's happening. Read you... This has been circulating now for the last maybe five years. This kind of Jewish Buddha says, I don't know how many of you have seen these. So one of the Jewish Buddha says is, if there is no self, whose arthritis is this? You know, that's, that's one of them. Okay. And then uh, another one, 
And this is really the meaning we're making out of things, right? Deep inside you are 10,000 flowers. Each flower blossoms 10,000 times. Each blossom has 10,000 petals. You might want to see a specialist. (laughs) (laughs) How are we relating to what's going on inside us? Now, when we're suffering, here's what's going on. We're saying something bad's happening. It's happening to me. And often it's going to get worse that around the corner, and this is the hard part, around the corner, it's like even if now is not so terrible, around the corner is going to be something that's over the top that we can't handle, that's too much to handle. So that's the story that we're saying, that we're telling ourselves. And what happens is we get locked into the sense of being an endangered, frightened, separate self. We get locked into that. Then what happens is we try to control things. In other words, something's ba- something bad's going on and I need to take control. So not only are we a frightened, endangered self, but we're a controlling self, a self that's trying to control ourselves and the people around us and what's going on. And it's not a very pleasant identity. If you've been sick for any length of time, you know that the sense of who we are gets really narrow and tight. It's very hard not to go into that. So again, um, what I'm describing is this conditioning, not to just have it be unpleasant, but to tell a story about it. Something's wrong. It's happening to me. I need to control it. We shrink. Now, we're biologically designed to react to pain. And just to say that pain is our signal to pay attention and possibly to respond to what's going on in a way to take care of ourselves. So we're meant to, when we feel unpleasantness, get alert and see what needs to be taken care of. So we're supposed to bandage the open wounds or take the ibuprofen with a strong headache or treat the cancer, whatever it is, we're, we're meant to respond. That's intelligent. But what happens is that we go beyond what's necessary, go beyond what's intelligent, and um, we end up looping around in stories that make us miserable. It's not necessary that strong pain make us miserable. There are many people, and I'm one of them, that gave birth and realized how unpleasant it was but wasn't suffering. I didn't suffer because I wasn't telling myself a story about it. But we add things to pain. We, We do the thing of, you know, it's not just, you know, this flu, but it's happening to me and it's some, something's wrong with this. Again, from the, the Jewish Buddha, uh, be aware of your body. Be aware of your perceptions. Keep in mind that not every physical sensation is a symptom of a terminal illness. <laughs> and then be here now. Be someplace else later. Is that so complicated? <laughs> you know? They go on and on. I'll spare you the rest of them. But you get the idea, I think, that um, we add on. So there's an attitude that it's something bad's happening to me and that we need to control it. And you might say when I say that, well, isn't it true? I mean, isn't there something often with pain that something bad is happening and it has to do with the loss? 
of, you know, something, maybe our health. And from the perspective of an ego or small self, yeah, there's loss and eventually loss of this life. And the response that's appropriate is compassion. So, yeah, pain, loss, have some compassion. But what that can also often leave out is a larger truth, which is that there is a refuge, a larger sense of belonging that has room for this coming and going life, that we can take refuge in a larger sense of belonging. And we've all tasted that. We know what it's like when we're having a hard time to be with somebody else and feel comforted because we sense, oh, it's not just me. Or we sense, oh, there's some love and there's some safety and some people that are here for me. I've been in one situation, one dear friend who was um, dying of lymphoma. And he described that he said for a while there was suffering, but that's when he thought he was going it alone. And when he started realizing how many people loved him. He said that love tapped him into a reality that was bigger than the sense of this coming going life. And for the remainder of his life, it was one of deepening trust in that reality. So we're not denying that from the personal self perspective, there's loss to be grieved and have compassion for. We're just saying there's something more. And if we block it, if we don't sense this larger refuge, we're always going to be tensing against the inevitable. And what happens is that in cultures that are very disconnected, that don't have a sense of a larger belonging, in other words, cultures that don't feel the belonging to the earth and to the web of life, and there's not a sense of tribe or or intimacy with others so much, those are the cultures where there's the most distrust and fear of what goes on in these bodies. Okay, the more there's a sense of this this world is alien and I don't really belong, the more this body is alien. And not only do we mistrust it, we try to control it. So what do we have in the West? We have a situation where we jump to anesthetize, to numb. We try to disconnect from our body and try to manipulate it in different ways. And we do it to the earth, too, where we're manipulating the genetics of crops and we're manipulating the environment to extract as many resources as we can. And we cut off mountaintops and we pollute streams. And in other words, we're not in harmony because there's not a sense of belonging. The way we raise our children In this generation in particular, we can see it. There's less and less of a sense of belonging to the earth. Math teacher saw that little Johnny wasn't paying attention in class. She called on him and said, Johnny, what are 4, 2, 28, and 44? Little Johnny quickly replied, NBC, CBS, HBO, and the Cartoon Network. (laughs) So there's not this sense of the, the, you know, the earth and the rhythms. One other story, a father's at the beach with his children and four-year-old son runs up to him and grabs his hand and leads him to the shore where a seagull lay dead in the sand. Daddy, what happened to him? The son asked. Well, he died and went to heaven, the dad replied. The boy thought about this for a moment and then said, 
did God throw him back? (laughs) So there's a wildness here in this body that's out of control. And if we don't have a sense of belonging to the earth, to each other, and to, to spirit, to love, we don't have a sense of belonging, that wildness is a dangerous place and we're not so easy about inhabiting it. We, we leave a lot in our thoughts and we try to figure things out and we have ideas about it. We try to control. And the point isn't that we, as I mentioned earlier, shouldn't try to um, comfort ourselves. That's not this machismo thing. I like the way George Carlin put it. He says, my motto is, no pain, no pain. (laughs) So pain's a signal, and yet if we're not connected and listening, we get into a habitual overreaction, a mistrust that has us resist. We're in kind of a chronic state of saying no, of resisting. So there's a basic principle I'm going to put in here, which many of you have heard, this equation that pain times resistance equals suffering. So if there's zero resistance, pain times zero equals? Right, no suffering. To the extent that we tense against what's happening, that very tension locks us into a sense of a separate, disconnected, endangered self. The more we resist the more threatened we feel. So our mindfulness training that we do here is really a training. We start with the level of sensations and the breath, and we start learning how to be with what's here. And I'm inviting you right now just to kind of sense into your body how we can, if we want, just close our eyes and feel what's here. And if there's discomfort, to put aside the word pain and with interest just perceive what's here as sensations. Our practice in mindfulness is to pay attention on purpose and without any resistance. So if you just take a few moments right now and sense, is that possible for me? Can I enter this body, inhabit this body with awareness and just let this play of sensations express itself with zero resistance. You might notice if there's areas of unpleasantness Can your awareness be a kind of soft space around the unpleasantness, which truly allows it to be just as it is? If it's not too unpleasant, you might even bring the attention close in kind of like a microscopic lens and just feel right at the center of it. Heat, tightness, burning, pressure, ache. Just sense what it is 
And notice what happens if there really isn't resistance. If you're energetically saying yes, you're allowing life to unfold itself. Notice how things change. Notice the space that's there if you're just allowing, allowing. If you deepen and really sense pure yes, pure allowing, and then just inquire, who am I when I'm saying yes? You sense that kind of opening out of any sense of a solidified self just a belonging to aliveness, to presence. So this is our training to become intimate with this world of sensations and not add on something, just open without resistance. And then we sense, well, what stops us? I mean, we spend so much time not opening to what's here. And it's as I mentioned, we add on very quickly that um, what's happening is bad when it's unpleasant. And that we add on, it'll get worse, and we feel that anxiety. Or we might add on, it's never going to change or improve, and then we get depressed. Each of these add-ons is rooted in a fear of loss. In other words, our fundamental tendency to take physical sensations that are unpleasant and then have that proliferate comes out of a fear of loss. And all organisms latch onto life and fear loss. So for each of us, when we are caught in the suffering around illness, it's because there's a fear of loss. And when there's a fear of loss, there's a reflex to try to control and say no to what's happening. So what happens is we get identified with this controller, and that begins to take over our life. And then we have different ways we do it. We each have our controller's false refuges. Some of us control what's going on by blaming ourselves or others, and some of us get obsessive about figuring out how to, how, what's the cure that's really going to make the difference for us and some of us uh, just distract ourselves and and just leave in a lot of different uh, meandering thoughts but then the question comes up what happens let's say we've got some physical sickness going on unpleasantness in the body what happens when we habitually leave when we're controlling what's going on trying to get away from that sense of vulnerability get away from that fear of loss, what happens when we leave? First of all, it takes energy to keep walling off what's there. So we get tired. So many people tell me, people that are struggling with chronic illness, how tired they are. 
Well, part of it often is because of saying no to what's going on. It takes energy to wall off experience. But what else is going on? Well, when we're tensing against what's going on inside us, that very tension creates more physical sickness. It blocks energy, it blocks flow, it blocks healing. What else goes on? Well, when we're saying no to that loss, that vulnerability inside us, we might temporarily push it away and dissociate, but there's this chronic um, anxiety that's there because something in us intuits that there's something painful inside us still. We're avoiding it, but it's still inside out operating to keep us anxious. So there's a chronic level of anxiety when we say no to our experience. And then in the most deep way, what happens when we're saying no to our experience? We become the self that's saying no. Our identity becomes organized around this resisting self, this controlling self, and fundamentally the scared self. So what's our pathway back home? How, when we have chronic illness, are when we're actually facing death, when we're in the, in the midst of dying and there's a part of us that's resisting, that's struggling, that's afraid, how do we find ourselves that refuge of peace of balance? When I work with people and I notice the difference between people that have chronic illness and are fairly happy, that are actually have some peace in their being, people that are dying that really have touched peace. And I compare that to people that that are clearly disconnected and struggling. There's one central element that I've seen over and over again, which is those people that are happy regardless have a very deep aspiration they're aware of. They're purposeful in their life. And they're purposeful, they're remembering what matters to them. I'm going to say that again. The difference between people that are happy, that are content, in the midst of illness and dying, and those that are not, is those that are content have a sense of purposefulness, of aspiration. They're remembering what matters. In some way, they're remembering that love matters, that presence matters, that belonging matters. There's a remembrance going on. And out of that remembrance, there's an intention towards presence, towards being here. Now, there's there's this wakefulness there, a remembering what matters. And that remembering has two wings, as they describe it, of awareness to it. Those that have found peace and happiness in the midst of illness are remembering this wing of what is happening right here, of noticing what's going on in the moment, and this wing of love, of in some way regarding what's happening with love. So I'd like to explore that further. I'd like to explore how can we awaken these two wings in the midst of when we're stuck, when we're dealing with illness and we're stuck. And there's three kind of stuck places I'll describe tonight. And one is the stuck place of when we're stuck in self-blame. 
I have run into many, many people that when they scratch beneath the surface, people that are struggling with illness, they find that their whole heart and mind is contracted in self-blame. It's my fault that I'm sick or it reflects badly on me. Does that make sense? The self-blame. I remember for myself that um, when it came most clear, I had just been up at Cape Cod uh, and I knew I couldn't go running any longer on the beach. So I thought I'd try speed walking instead. And uh, little did I know that speed walking on a slanted beach in bare feet was going to be just as bad for my knees as running. And I came back pretty much a cripple. I couldn't go up and down stairs. And and I was in bad shape. And it took me weeks to be able to walk without a lot of pain. And and uh, my husband, Jonathan, had to do a lot to help take care of me. And I kind of sunk into a real funk, into a depression. And I was pretty miserable. I was pretty irritable and grumpy and down. And I remember one morning uh, when I was doing my practice, I asked a question I often ask, which is, you know, what is between me and, and feeling present? And I felt all this aversion to how my body was feeling. And then I heard a voice in my mind saying, I hate my life. Okay, that's pretty dramatic. And then right on the heels of that, I hate myself. And now that was a little bit of a flag because, you know, I don't usually go around, you know, I can sometimes get on my own case, but I hate myself as pretty rock bottom. So I took some time with that. And what I realized was that this sick self, the self that was feeling like life was wrong, that things were going to even get more wrong, that she was not handling it gracefully. Okay, I had this set of criteria as a spiritual person on how I was supposed to navigate, and I was falling, like, way short. I had just gradually gotten more and more on my own case until I really felt like a failure. I was, a, a, I was sick, miserable, and a failure. And then the, the sadness of that just hit me, that here I was having a really rough time and adding on the second arrow, as many of you will remember that term. The first arrow is that there's just difficulty. The second arrow is that we then judge ourselves for the difficulty. When I saw that, the, uh, this prayer sprung forth of, please may I be kinder. Please may I be kinder. And, and I did a practice I often do of just offering forgiveness. I just say, forgiven, forgiven, to whatever is coming up. And that's the second wing, by the way. The first wing, notice what's happening. The second wing, in some way, respond with kindness. And in this case, the expression of kindness, because there are different expressions of this second wing, was forgiveness. I was talking to a, a friend this week who's a successful writer and a mom, and she was and she's writing a book right now about body-mind healing, and, and she has struggled herself with chronic illness. And she was working with a meditation teacher some time back, and, and the teacher said, well, let's try the word forgiven, because this woman had described what, feeling very kind of stuck and, and, and having a hard time. And so this teacher said, let's try the word forgiven. So this woman closed her eyes and mentally whispered the word forgiven, forgiven, as I do. And a torrent of tears, just released a torrent of tears immediately. 
And she realized that underneath all her thoughts about her illness and all her, you know, all the, all the pain of what was going on was this lacerating sense of shame, of self-blame. So that's the first example I'd like to give, which is that with chronic illness, with sickness, even approaching dying, there can be a sense of embarrassment or shame or I'm not doing this right. And if we don't see that we've turned on ourselves, there's no way to find peace in the midst of this changing life. Okay, the second stuck place, fear. We get gripped by fear. There's physical discomfort and pain, and then there's the mind just spins into um, what this means and what it's going to mean for my life. And what we tend to do is try to avoid that fear by staying busy, by distracting ourselves, by being productive. Anything we can do, then sit down into it. And again, I'll share with you from my my own experience, this controller part of us, that um, when I first started getting more and more ill, which was about eight years ago, I tried very hard to push through. And well, I would have teaching commitments and say, well, look, I committed myself to this. I'm going to do it, even when I was feeling pretty miserable. And, um, and I found that if I could be very productive and active, I could bypass being with the vulnerability, which was something was going on in my body, and it was really requiring attention. And I was going to need to slow down, but I didn't want to. So I... Um, kind of pushed and pushed. And then this went on on and off for a few years. About five years ago, I was leading up to teaching one of our New Year's retreats, IMCW New Year's retreats, and I was hell-bent on on making it through that retreat. I told myself I could collapse afterwards, but my body didn't cooperate. I collapsed before the retreat, and I had to cancel. I had to not be part of it. And I landed up in a hospital and, you know, just having to trail an IV into the bathroom and being really, really sick. I had bradycardia. My, my blood, my heart was beating very slow. I was very weak, very vulnerable. And I remember um, being there and having these spinning thoughts of, okay, how am I going to cover my classes? How am I going to cover this Wednesday night class? And again, the controller was trying to get into the action, figure things out. And um, at one point, a, a nurse came in to take my vitals, and she put her hand on my shoulder and said, oh, dear, you're really feeling poorly, aren't you? And she laughed, and then it just, the dam broke. It's like the, the controller was sidelined. There was no, I just could not begin to figure anything out. I just had to sit down into the uncertainty and the vulnerability and the fear. And that's when, okay, these two wings, just be with it. Just let it be and notice it and notice it. That's one wing. This is the wing of mindful presence. And then the second wing, the more I noticed the fear, I found under it a grief. It was just a sense of, oh, losing life, separated from no longer able to engage and be part of, losing life. And with that grief came a tremendous compassion. So this is the second wing. I started kind of holding myself. I was lying in that, you know, how hospital beds are. They're kind of up, half, almost half upright and kind of on my side just hugging myself sobbing quietly because I had a roommate. 
But what was amazing was that in those two wings of just noticing and sobbing and offering compassion to myself, there wasn't any controlling. There was just being there. And there was a relief. It was like I had gotten real. I wasn't trying anymore to run away from what was happening. I was contacting that loss, not running from it. There was space, and in that space, the sense of who I was opened up. I was resting in a place of compassionate presence, not the controlling self that's trying like crazy to get away from something wrong. Now, that wasn't a one-shot. As soon as I felt a tiny bit better, the controller jumped right back in trying to plan how much I could teach, what I couldn't teach, how I was going to fix the sickness, and so on. And so it is that um, we don't like hanging out in vulnerability and uncertainty. And I adopted a mantra during the hospital stay that I'll share with you. This is from Chogyam Trungpa, who is a Tibetan teacher. He says, really, that our entire spiritual practice is to meet our edge and soften. Over and over, to meet our edge and soften. And to me, these are like, this is a, a very pithy and powerful expression of the two wings. To meet our edge means to just see in contact what is here right now. Okay, this fear this uncertainty, this feeling of loss. And then to soften is the heart space. Does that make sense? We meet our edge, see what's here, recognize it, and then soften in some way. Now, there's different ways of softening. When I got back from Cape Cod, the softening was forgiven, forgiven. When I was in the hospital bed... The softening was a kind of holding myself and sending a message of compassion inward. There are different ways of softening. But the bottom line is this deep intention to be present with what is. Now a question comes up that I'll share with you. This is a question that are, it's a combination question and confession that I get a lot which is that when people are trying to be present with what goes on, they don't really feel accepting. It's like they're bargaining with what's going on. They're saying, okay, I'll be present with this pain so that it'll go away. Or I'll meditate to heal this this illness so that I'm free of this illness. This bargaining mind, I mean, bargaining mind is the kind of phrase that a lot of the Vipassana teachers use, but it's a very deep thing that we're told to accept what's here. You know, we're told in some way, recognize and allow it, really allow it. But everything in our body and mind's going, no way, I don't like this, I want it to go away. So even when we get into our meditator stance, okay, I'm allowing this, We're allowing it on this condition that we're going to work it through and have it go away. Is this familiar? I just want to check with you. Okay. So the basic stance or understanding is that we're not able to accept it. That in some way we are at war with how it is. And I want to say that it's entirely natural that we want the pain to go away. It's entirely natural that we want to get healed. 
In fact, it's healthy to be hopeful. But I want to be careful here because it's healthy to be hopeful, meaning open to possibility, available to the possibility of healing, of freedom, of deepening our belonging to aliveness, of more love. It's healthy to be hopeful when that hope is wide open. But what happens to us, and this is where the suffering is, is that hope gets fearful and tense and it fixates and we want it to be a certain way. I want this pain to go away. I want this cancer to disappear. And there's suffering then because when we have fixated our hopes, it might or might not happen, but there's a tension in our system that actually prevents us from the very presence that frees us. Our identity when we're hoping is still the wanting, fearing self. We're still narrowly identified. So here's the thing. We can't will ourselves to accept. We can't will ourselves to accept this depression or to accept this fear or to accept this loneliness. We can't will ourselves. We can be willing. So we're coming back to intention again. Remember how I spoke about the difference between happy people and people that are struggling? There can be an intention, a willingness that comes from a deep wisdom that knows that our freedom is when we're present. There can be a willingness. We can be willing to notice what's happening. We can be willing to notice when we're not accepting. In other words, you don't have to be accepting. You just have to be mindful of being not accepting. If you're mindful of resistance, your identity is not so hitched to it. You're already more free. So this is our training, that we, whether we're sitting here and the instructions are, okay, just open to the sensations right here, or whether the instructions are open to the fear or the resistance that's here. In the moments that we intend to be present, we begin to rest in an enlarged sense of being. We begin to find refuge. One woman writes, My days are short, and as I grow weaker, I experience so much gratitude for my meditation, not only the joy and ease it brought, but the hard parts. For every bored and restless sitting, and every fearful fantasy, and every pain and ache I sat through, and every itch I didn't scratch, was a training for kindness a training for the muscle for bearing witness, for the trusting spirit that carries me now as I face my death. So what we're exploring tonight is a pathway home, whether it's physical discomfort or chronic illness or dying, or whether it's some other difficulty and emotional reaction, that if it's our intention, our willingness to be here, we begin to discover a refuge, what I sometimes think of as an enlarged belonging, 
We begin to intuit that what we belong to is awareness, is love, and that this belonging's big enough so that while we might not like the unpleasantness and while we might feel grief about loss, there's room for it because what we are is larger. I'd like to mention one last stuck place that's very difficult, which is when we're sick, when we're dying, it's possible to feel incredibly isolated and utterly alone. Like others do not get it, they don't understand, and we're a million miles away from anybody else. And often when we go through the day, when we're struggling, we're not conscious that we're suffering because we feel so separate. That's kind of below our awareness or consciousness. And tonight I've been focusing mostly on the inner processes that help us find some refuge and peace in these um, really challenging moments. The most blessed sacred pathway is interpersonally is that we, as I describe my friend who is dying of lymphoma, we begin to recognize that we're in it together. It's what I sometimes call the community of loss. And really, we're all part of it. We're really in it together. And when we let each other know what's going on for us, and when we let another help us, and we offer our care to another, we discover a belonging, a field of belonging, which is truth, which can hold us. And sometimes when we're stuck in that isolated place, we can't reach out in those moments to this community of loss. And so there needs to be a way that we can find it uh, within ourselves. And, and this last story I'd like to share, uh, a friend named Francie, uh, is a story really of how we can use prayer to awaken that second wing of love. So again, every time we find refuge... It has these two wings. It's got a wing of noticing what's going on, mindful awareness, and some expression of love. So Francie uh, had metastasized breast cancer and was very resolved to move through the process with presence and drawing on the Dharma teachings. And yet it got very difficult. And at one point she told me that she lost her faith. She felt like mindfulness She had no access to mindfulness, that she was just tired and confused, and that for the most part she was feeling nauseous and weak and just trying to get through the day. But she didn't want others to see that. I mean, people knew her to be such, she was very bright spirit, and people kind of, she thought, counted on her to be that way. And so she didn't want to let them down. So when she, we met, she was very much in touch with this loneliness, and, and we did a practice where We began with these two wings where she just said, okay, lonely, lonely, feeling isolated, isolated. And I I asked a question I often do, which is, what does that lonely part most want? You know, what if that lonely part could could say something? What's it saying? And she said, it's saying help, (laughs) which is what it says often. And then I said, okay, so add some words on. What does that part want? And... She was quiet for a few moments, and then she said, it's saying, please love me. So we explored some more. 
And I said, you know, if there was a source of that love, what would it be? And as her mom, who had passed away many years ago, I said, if you could feel a loving, what it would be like? And she described that she could feel her mom's warmth and light enveloping her. And she could feel a very conscious presence loving her and taking care of her. Not some amorphous thing, but a very conscious presence right here that was loving her. So I invited her to start praying and just to say out loud, please love me. And she said it out loud and was quiet a bit and then started crying. And then she said it again and again. And it was from a deeper and deeper sense of longing. And she started imagining her her mom sending her love. And then she she went on. She said, I was imagining friends. I would see a friend and say, please love me. And as soon as I'd say, please love me, I felt like the friend was loving me. And then it went to plants and trees. And so this was her meditation, and this is one that she, by the way, did uh, after we I sent her home, and this was her meditation. She would feel that separateness, and she would say, please love me, and she'd feel love coming from different parts of the world until, as she described it, she dissolved in that love, and she felt that the whole world was loving her, and then it was her love loving the world, and then there was no difference. This is the power of prayer. We start with the angst. It's like a tree that puts its roots into the earth, deep, 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 into the earthiness of our humanness, into the loss and the pain and the grief. And then from that, we express our longing. It's like the tree rising up into the heavens. And the more your roots go deep into the pain, the more the longing will reach out with this incredible sincerity and power to what you perceive as the source of love. So this was her practice, to feel the separateness and reach towards connection and discover it. And I often quote John O'Donohue, who says that, that prayer is the bridge between longing and belonging. Francie and I got together a few weeks before she died, and she said to me that when you accept that you're dying, it's not hard to feel one with God. When you accept that you're dying, it's not hard to feel one with God. So when you accept, when there's no resistance, you discover a belonging to the universe. You discover that oneness. This is Relka. You who let yourselves feel, enter the breathing that is more than your own. Let it brush your cheeks as it divides and rejoins beside you. Blessed ones, whole ones, you where the heart begins, you are the bow that shoots the arrows and you are the target. Fear not the pain. Let its weight fall back into the earth. For heavy are the mountains, heavy the seas. The trees you planted in childhood have grown too heavy. You cannot bring them along. Give yourselves to the air, to what you cannot hold.
the great question that really impelled the Buddha on his quest was given the inevitability of aging, sickness, and death, how do we find happiness and peace and freedom right here? And as I mentioned, those that do find it have an aspiration to realize their belonging, to realize who they really are. And that doesn't mean a denying of the humanness of what this self experiences. It just means realizing beyond that story, this belonging to the web of life, to each other, to love, to presence. And if our aspiration is to realize that belonging, then we can find that freedom. We can find the peace that surpasses all understanding. So maybe as a way of closing, we're going to meditate in a few moments, is to say that standing in the fire of sickness, facing mortality, is probably the most powerful place of awakening I know about. There's no way to do it and cling tightly to our story of a self. There has to be a willingness to touch the presence and to open to the love that's beyond our separate self story. So we explore cultivating these two wings, and this is really the heart of our practice, this wing of presence of seeing what is happening right here, and this wing of love where we offer forgiveness or compassion, where we reach out in prayer to soften and open the heart, these two wings. So I'd like to close with a a meditation on the two wings. If you'd like to shift how you're sitting in some way, please do so. So letting this be a pause where you invite yourself right here. Perhaps allowing the inflow and outflow of the breath to help collect your attention. You might sense your intention that wherever the difficulty is in your life, whether it's a chronic illness or some other challenge in a relationship or work, to let yourself feel the intention that this serve awakening, that this be part of the path. this willingness to find presence in the midst. So this is a remembering of what matters, that presence matters, that love matters, that realizing your true belonging, the truth or wholeness of what you are matters. And then to see if there's a situation in your life, what you might call something that's 
that's an edge or a challenge or a difficulty that you'd like to bring more into your awareness, that you'd like to be more awake within. And if you are struggling in some way with a health problem, your body is going through discomfort, then let that be the place you pay attention. I offered that phrase, meeting your edge and softening. Sense where the edge is in this situation for you. What is it you're afraid of? What is it that's disturbing or distressing? Maybe your edge is how you're relating to yourself in it, if you're down on yourself. Maybe there's a belief about failing, about things getting worse, about never being happy, about being rejected. To sense where your edge is. This is the wing of mindful awareness, of noticing what's here. And that includes contacting and experiencing in your body this edge. And feel your willingness also to bring the second wing, the wing of kindness, that as you sense your edge, you soften. Softening for some might mean just simply saying, forgiven, forgiven. For others, it might be putting your hand on your heart and just offering kindness and comfort, recognizing this is hard. Simple compassion. Great healing with self-compassion. And for others, it may be a prayer. Please love me. Maybe the prayer, may I trust my belonging to love, to presence, to spirit. The trees you planted in childhood have grown too heavy. You cannot bring them along. Give yourself to the air, to what you cannot hold. This surrendering presence, this saying yes. We close just by simply feeling what it's like in the body to say yes. With presence, with kindness to the life that's here.
sensing how deep that yes can go. Sensing who we are when we're saying yes. This aliveness, this presence, this space of heart. The talk you just listened to has been freely offered. If you'd like to make a donation, learn more about my schedule, or about programs offered by the Insight Meditation Community of Washington, please visit either my website, which is tarabrock.com, or IMCW's site, which is imcw.org. Thank you very much.